Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Here with Matthew Winkler, the former Wall Street Journal reporter who got to build a media empire with a story subject named Michael Bloomberg. Stay with us. Please join us on November 10th at RVA's historic National Theater for Full Disclosure Live with the band Not A Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the concert. 25 years of highs, lows, reinvention, and hustle in the rapidly changing music industry. Tickets at Facebook.com slash Full D Radio and on Twitter at Full D Radio. Sunday, November 10th, Not A Surf Live on Full Disclosure. Join us. Joining me from Bloomberg News' Midtown Manhattan mothership, uh, this global headquarters, is Matt Winkler, co-founder and editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. How are you, sir? Better for speaking to you. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Now, I was just thinking that something on the order of 30 years had transpired since you know this, this company, this now media empire with north of 2,000 journalists, and it's in 120 countries, was kind of a twinkle in your eye when you were profiling... Mike Bloomberg and his uh, data business in the late 80s when you were a scribe for the Wall Street Journal. Take me back to September of 88. Well, Bloomberg was very much in focus. It was not a twinkle in my eye because, truth be told, at that moment, I was probably the happiest reporter at the Wall Street Journal um, and covering uh, the Wall Street (laughs) in the Wall Street Journal. And I could think of doing nothing better. Bloomberg happened to be a very interesting story that I was pursuing uh, in 1988 uh, when uh, it became a a front-page leader. And the reason why it was such an interesting story is because up until that point, really, up until the last two decades of the 20th century, the buy side, if you will, of Wall Street, which is the institutional investor Mm. and everything that's part of that, got pretty much all of its information from the sell side, which was the securities industry, the the traders. So we're saying the wirehouses. Back in the day, you'd be talking about Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch. I guess this is the era of Shearson, Lehman, Hutton, right? Sure. And, And Bloomberg, because of its ability, even in its infancy, to provide relative value uh, because it was the only electronic system that had historical price information to the present. So if you were an investor, you knew essentially what was cheap and what was expensive. And Bloomberg got between, if you will, the sell side and the buy side. And that was extraordinary and, uh, dare I say, it changed the face of Wall Street. And so that was this story that uh, I was pursuing. And of course, it interested me given that uh, journalists, uh, I was one, still am, are most interested in relative value because we can't provide context and perspective without providing relative value. You know, what is worth more than something else? What is better, worse? Uh, We can't you know, provide the superlatives unless we understand what relative value so, is. So, Matt, who tipped you off back then? I'm trying to think of Wall Street and Gordon Gecko and the Quotron machine. I think this must have predated Tellerate, which Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal invested in. Who said that, listen, this is all the rage on Wall Street? And you go back and if you go to the Bloomberg building, you see these Jurassic parts, these boxy terminals from the 1980s, very proprietary, kind of close-ended. You know, we're not even talking about the explosion of the PC yet. 
uh, in the United States. But this was really gaining steam on both the sell side and the buy side. And when did you first hear about this company, maybe at a tipping point? Uh, really at, in its first or second year. And it was not the rage on Wall Street. It was far from it. It was uh, sort of a proprietary system by Merrill Lynch because Merrill Lynch was Bloomberg's first customer. And this was 1984, 85. I was in London at the time reporting on um, what would be called later the Big Bang, which was essentially the deregulation of uh, centuries-old financial system in London. And uh, it just so happened that in the course of covering euro bonds and lots of other securities, I would be talking every day to the head of government securities trading at Merrill Lynch, whose ability to deliver mathematically precise answers to my questions finally provoked me to say, where do you get all this stuff from? And uh, he said it was a terminal sitting on his desk. Then he called it the Bloomberg. And that was my immediate and first uh, connection to what we now know as the Bloomberg. And what fascinated me, as I said, was that at the time, uh, this trader, like a lot of people who used the Bloomberg, mostly at Merrill Lynch, they were able to see from one, essentially from one day to the next, what the relative value of uh, debt instruments, bonds um, were, um, and they could do it with greater clarity than anyone else. And what of course, intrigued me was that with this kind of information, it was at least, you know, three weeks ahead of any column I could possibly write for the Wall Street Journal. I have to ask you, did did Michael Milken have one of these? I always wonder. He did. He did. Uh, In the Beverly you know, Hills. Virtually, the famous... by, by the time that, you know, uh, I uh, was writing about Bloomberg uh, for the Wall Street Journal, pretty much... Um, everybody who was in the debt market, um, if they if they didn't have a Bloomberg because they couldn't, they knew somebody who did. And if Mike Milken didn't have a Bloomberg uh, in 1988, he would have had one, you know, just a couple years uh, later. Um, and he has had, you know, a Bloomberg terminal. He's been a customer. I think, um, from that point on. And I've always wanted to ask, I don't know if this is apocryphal, my first job out of college in 98, I worked uh, in the brokerage industry, and I remember uh, when I was fascinated kind of digging in uh, after Series 7 training and Series 63 training, they teach you the Bloomberg ins and outs, and somebody from Bloomberg came and taught us the go function, the top button. You could find things as esoteric as Italian rabbit meat spot. And I, I obsessed because I found the Michael Lewis section. He was one of my favorite authors. You could type NI space Lewis go. And I was like, wow, there's this whole treasure trove of Michael Lewis columns. And I, of course, loved liars poker and didn't realize there was this whole other side to him. But then one, some of the old timers at the desk at Goldman told me, you should have seen how this was a killer app. 10 years ago, back when I worked at Shearson, and it used to be that the killer app was the messaging function. It predated email. It predated, uh, you know, uh, CompuServe, Prodigy, all these things. You could get through to anybody instantly. Is that is that really the case? It was like the first messaging app? Yeah. I mean, what people, um, and they can be forgiven for this, don't often realize is that 
Bloomberg because it was from day one uh, real time and um, real time globally. And that was not because of chips. It was because of wiring, hard wiring. And we had um, from infancy uh, sites all over the globe that essentially connected uh, enough power to your terminal to enable you to see everything um, instantly. And that was not possible back then with a regular computer, you, you know, and, and, and to put that in perspective, if you went to the back of a Bloomberg terminal, um, you saw a, uh, looked like a hose actually, or a snake, it looked like a, actually a pretty serious venomous snake coming out of the back of the terminal, which was electronic cable. And it was so thick because it had to provide enough juice uh, power to enable you to see all these things. And remember, when we started Bloomberg News in 1990, that was four years before Netscape sure. introduced the internet <laughs> to everybody. Nobody knew what the internet really was right. uh, in 1990. Uh, they weren't talking about it. And so Bloomberg really was the first real-time information system. And that wasn't just delivering data news. It was delivering messages as well. You could communicate with anybody anywhere on the Bloomberg instantly. So the network effects of this on Wall Street are huge. You could cut to the chase. You could get to anyone on the buy side. Uh, traders and other people are, are spreading the word about it. Do you remember what it cost when you profiled him in 88? Yeah, it was um, $9.99 uh, a month if you bought a Bloomberg 2. And uh, if you bought just one terminal. It was also, I think, nine ninety nine as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was just under a thousand dollars. So thirty one years later, you're talking upward of twenty two thousand. I mean, that's what I time stamped it when I was last at Bloomberg in twenty fourteen. Yeah, it, it's somewhere around. There. And how many terminals are connected the world over now? They're more than three hundred and thirty thousand. Wow. I have to ask you, in the scene surrounding this, so. Mike Bloomberg gets his A1 treatment in the Wall Street Journal in the autumn of 1988. What were the conversations you were having in parallel with him? I want to know how journalism or proprietary journalism was broached. So, you know, I got to know him because uh, actually I mentioned this earlier. Um, you know, if you cut me back then, my, my blood was truly Dow Jones red. I, I really loved everything about what I was doing. Dow Jones, the parent of the Wall Street Journal, which, Correct. Was, owned, which was owned by the Bancroft family. They used to call it Mother Dow. Yeah. So um, part of my responsibility at the Wall Street Journal in the 80s, uh, in addition to covering uh, securities industry and the debt market, was uh, also being responsible for data. And uh, for decades, uh, the journal would publish three full pages of what we journalists call agate, which in fact was something much more valuable to mm. most of its readers, which was the prices and yields of all the treasury bonds and related securities. Um, and in the 80s, the U.S. bond market was the market that was telling all other markets what to do mm. every day. And uh, the problem, which became more acute was that with all these securities uh, and how important they were, the process by which the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which delivered the prices and yields to uh, 
the AP, the Associated Press, which in turn delivered it to the Wall Street Journal and hundreds of other newspapers, was a pretty uh, archaic process, uh, Bob Cratchit style. There would be this character who would descend from 200 Liberty Street, uh, where the Fed is, uh, every day at 3.15, and he would hand four or five legal size sheets of paper Seriously? with prices and yields <laughs> and pencil marks all over them to a runner. Um, and then the runner would, you know, dive into the Fulton Street subway and come out at 50 Rockefeller <laughs> Center and hand the <laughs> sheets to another ancient person at the AP who would be furiously typing these prices and yields into a, a machine. And then they would be transmitted via the AP to the Wall Street Journal and lots of other newspapers. The problem was there would be errors every day. And, and Dow Jones and, and the AP were not happy about this. And Bloomberg um, happened to hear their lament because they were selling him a news product that he had on his, on his terminal. And um, he said, folks, you know, I can, I can take care of all this uh, by delivering uh, all the prices you need. In fact, I can give you zero coupon bonds in addition, which were very popular back then. But the Fed didn't believe in uh, in the idea of stripping uh, coupons from their principal. So the Fed didn't provide zero coupon prices. So Mike said, I can do all of this for you. And I can deliver it uh, at 515 instead of 315. So they'll be more current. And I can also do it in five seconds, and you don't have to touch it. It'll go in electronically, go into your front-end system for layout, and all I ask is you put my name at the bottom. And a decision had been made, because this was such a great offer, um, to go with Bloomberg after decades of receiving all this information from the Fed. And I was apoplectic because uh, I was now in New York. I'd been in London for five years. And part of my job was to reorganize all the dead information for the journal. And I said, this is outrageous because all of these prices and yields come from one firm, Merrill Lynch. And essentially, this is a full page or three full page advertisement for Bloomberg and Merrill Lynch. And it's not as good as the prices that used to come from the Fed. And of course, uh, the argument uh, that I made was uh, falling on deaf ears. Nobody cared because the Bloomberg uh, improvement, so to speak, was much more efficient. And it's not that the Merrill prices were bad. They were fine. It's just that they came from one firm. And I thought there was, if, least, if, if nothing else, an ethical issue there. But anyway, everybody ignored me and said, go back to work. Don't worry about it. And... Um, and I didn't have any choice. So a few months later, uh, near the end of 87, uh, I happened to be having a conversation with a friend and colleague who was one of the first reporters at the Wall Street Journal covering technology, Michael Miller, who's still very much uh, with the Wall Street Journal and very much an indispensable person. He just won the Loeb Award, Laurie Menard Award. And Mike and I, Mike Miller and I, were having a conversation, and he says to me, have you ever heard of this uh, company called Bloomberg? And, of course, I erupted like Vesuvius, uh, telling him all about what you know Bloomberg had been up to and what it was doing and in our own company, our own newspaper. And Mike Miller said to me, uh, in, in his inimical, unflappable way, you know, it sounds like 
from what you say Bloomberg is doing to financial information, what United Airlines and American Airlines did with their automated reservation systems in the 1970s, get people hooked on their data. And as soon as he said that, I said, oh, my goodness, that is such a great story. Nobody's written it. We've got to do this story. And so we literally wrote on a napkin uh, what would become the first four paragraphs of the uh, leader that would show up in the Wall Street Journal in September 1988. Um, so that's that's literally how it happened. Now, in the course of <laughs> reporting the story, I got to know Bloomberg quite well because I had to. Um, and uh, I got to know his customers as well. And... Um, it came as a surprise to me, actually, when he, uh, sort of a year and three months after our story had run, he said, calling me, he said, hi, it's Bloomberg, and, you know, answered my phone. I'm at the Wall Street Journal, and he says, uh, I need some advice. And I laughed because at that point, knowing him as I did, he didn't need advice from anybody, let alone a reporter from the Wall Street Journal. And he says, seriously, I need some advice. What would it take to get in the news business? And I said, you, sort of that way, <laughs> dismissively. And he said, yes, uh, me. And uh, and then I I thought about it and I said, you know, because he was doing all this uh, really advanced relative value um, analysis at a time when nobody did it. And I said, you know, if you combine that with – what we're doing at the Wall Street Journal, if you could marry those two things, you'd have something that doesn't exist anywhere. So time was that you would actually break news and M&A stuff. And if you were on Heard on the Street or in Business Week sense, you know, Gene Marcial on the back page, it was so – it was a different era where copy editors literally had to carry it around in a red folder to make sure that the printing press didn't get access to that information. I mean, it's amazing that that existed. But was he talking to you about the breaking news kinds of things and that he was a speed demon and that he liked efficiency and he thought that it was ridiculous that people were actually running – paper up and down Liberty Street, that if you can get your breakers with me and with my technology, we can really make magic. Well, I don't know if it was so much that. It was um, it was in some ways defensive, actually, because he had all this data uh, that was increasingly useful and would become ever more useful. And he needed he realized he needed to have news on his stage as well because the news would help people appreciate all the data that he had. He realized that they were very sim uh, simpatico, so to speak, uh, symbiotic. And he also realized that if he didn't have his own news, that if he bought somebody else's news, if he rented someone's news, he would be uh, ultimately punished for his success because – the rent would go up. And that was already happening, by the way. He is, you know, leasing a news product, an inferior news product from AP Dow Jones at the time when he and I met. And he didn't realize it was an inferior product. I, of course, knew that uh, belatedly. Uh, and he realized that uh, the more terminals he installed, um, the more he would have to pay for news. And so he came to the conclusion that and it was, again, sort of defensive. If I have my own news, then I'm not beholden to anybody and I won't get punished for my success. So that's really where the conversation began. For me, uh, 
uh, as a journalist, what was exciting was I already recognized that what he was doing with data, which is another way of saying what he was doing with facts, lots of facts, was extraordinary. And for a journalist to have access to the array of factual information that was available on Bloomberg was an extraordinary you know, gift. And that's what I saw. And so we had, you know, right at the outset sort of complete agreement about what we were going to do, which was one, make it possible that should any news provider um, threaten to boycott the Bloomberg, uh, we would be okay on our own. Mm. And, um, and that, in fact, is what happened. Um, you know, once I got to Bloomberg, within a few months, Dow Jones did say it would no longer do business with Bloomberg um, because it didn't believe in doing business with a competitor, um, which was an extraordinary acknowledgement because we <laughs> really hadn't done anything yet. Um, but that's really how it got started. And so it's sort of the every problem is an opportunity. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Matt Winkler. He's co-founder and editor-in-chief emeritus at Bloomberg News. It's been three decades since he uh, built this sprawling newsroom operation with uh, Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City. It now uh, totes 2,700-plus journalists and analysts across 120 countries around the world and 100 billion pieces of data processed by the Bloomberg terminal every day. I mean, so when was your last day at the Wall Street Journal? <laughs> Funny that you ask because it was also um, – well, it was uh, Friday, February 3rd, and my first day at Bloomberg was Friday, February 5th, and the reason – 1990. And the reason why I remember that is because my last story um, in the Wall Street Journal also was on page one, and it was about the demise of Drexel Burnham Lambert. Mm. Um, and so I was uh, – on the front page of the Wall Street Journal the day I showed up to work at Bloomberg. Were they were they kind of dismissive, like, oh, it's how cute, you're going off to a data company, but you're leaving kind of the gold standard of financial journalism jobs? Yeah, I think that was uh, a widespread perception, um, you know, and people could be forgiven for that because even though in our reporting we had shown – the potential that Bloomberg represented to be, uh, we can use this word now, disruptive. We didn't use that word back then. Um, you know, the prevailing uh, view, I think, was uh, I was nuts <laughs> uh, to leave the journal when I did. I think people thought I, I was um, crazy. Wow. So it's an interesting set of milestones. If you go, was it to 1980, the turn of the decade, then when he uh, left Solomon Brothers with a $10 million severance and then plowed it into this business. And then the next turn of the decade where he joins up with you and you leave the Wall Street Journal and then he gets to ride this business, the great roaring bull market of the 1990s. You fast forward to 2019 and Mike Bloomberg is worth $55 billion today and Bloomberg is a sprawling uh, news operation. I want to know what kind of what's in your head when you get up in the morning and walk into that building versus what you had originally envisioned with him. I mean, who were some of the few... Is, is another apocryphal story that you were just looking to hire a couple people on oil rigs to get proprietary information back to the terminal? So we didn't we didn't have the audacity to consider 
in any way what we are today. I mean, it was just about as far from anything we could imagine. What we did, though, have in front of us and what was invigorating, inspiring, was that we knew we were doing something, we were creating something that nobody else uh, had, certainly in journalism. And that was so exciting um, and inspiring. And um, it still is, by the way, when I, when I, since you asked, when I walk in the door at Bloomberg every day, uh, you know, I, I do feel like I'm living a dream. Um, yeah, and that's sort of an amazing thing because most people don't get a chance to live a dream. And I've been doing it for a while, uh, as you said. Uh, but back in the day, you know, when we started, um, we had no idea we would become what we are. We thought we would succeed. Uh, Answer your question. When Mike said to me, what would it take to get in the news business? I, you know, I said uh, five reporters in New York, uh, five reporters in London, five reporters in Tokyo. He remembers me saying three in each, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where we were. Uh, but Matt, did he tell you the, the famous admonition, don't F it up? I mean, that's kind oh, of yeah, one of his oh, trademarks. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. He was saying that to everybody at the time. So you uh. get five, 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 but don't F it up. And then I want to know in return, what did you, these are just not five people who are covering the M&A waterfront. I mean, did you did you convince him that these are reporters who are going to differentiate themselves from what the Wall Street Journal and, well, and the, the Newswires and Reuters are doing? Yeah. Look, the, the conversation actually was much more existential uh, than you might think, because when he said, I want to get in the news business, what does it take? And and he meant that question more as a, what's it going to cost me? Uh, as in, you know, dollar signs. And I said, I haven't the slightest idea what it will cost. Uh, being a financial journalist, of course, I had no idea. Um, what I did say to him, it was more of a question. I said, look, can, if you're serious about the news business, imagine your reporter uh, is writing about your biggest customer, uh, which at the time was Merrill Lynch. And the story that your reporter has confirmed and that has been lawyered and, you know, it is absolutely 100% true. And everything in it is pretty unflattering to your biggest mm. customer. And I said, you tell your biggest customer you're going to run this story uh, and your biggest customer calls back and says, you know, if you do that, every Bloomberg terminal, which was something like 2000 at the time that belonged to Merrill Lynch, they'll be removed from our trading floor tomorrow, Mike, if you do this, if you run this story. You can't run the story. And I said, Mike, what do you do? And he – it's very characteristic of him. He, he smiled. Uh, he didn't bat an eye. And he said, my lawyers will love you. And I said, wow, that's a great answer. That's the right answer. And uh, then he said, so what does it take to get in the news business? And I said, five reporters here, five there, and so on. But he, he fundamentally understood what the news business is all about, which is you've got to let the story take you wherever it's going to take you. And you don't know where it's going to take you. And that's what the news business is. And fortunately... That was the most important conversation for Bloomberg News, and it was the one, the one that we had at the very beginning. And certainly it has served us well. There are two very relevant milestones, financial milestones to this story. If I take you to the summer of 2007, August of 2007, at the eve of the financial crisis, here's the headline, Sarah Ellison's headline in the Wall Street Journal. 
Rupert Murdoch wins his bid for Dow Jones. The Bancroft family agrees to a $5 billion offer after deal on fees. A century of Bancroft family ownership at Dow Jones is over. And let's fast forward to the following summer where we're getting deeper into the financial crisis. Of course, not the pyrotechnics of September and October 2008 yet, but the headline nevertheless Merrill to sell Bloomberg stake for $4.5 billion. Merrill Lynch agreed to sell its 20% stake in Bloomberg back to the media company for $4.5 billion. Of course, they were at this point really looking at their capital tiers and where do I need to raise money and the country ride uh, situation. This was before the B of A um, you know, shotgun wedding happened. But it's interesting how uh, the, the tables had truly turned. Dow Jones and Mother Dow were not at all indefatigable by the middle part of the aughts when you had uh, advertising kind of fall off a cliff. Digital was cannibalizing away from this product. And the Bancrofts, the family got restive and said, you know what, we would take a nice bid. So uh, it's a very uh, interesting set of dates that you mentioned. Um, first of all, as you know, because we've already said it, we, we started in 1990. At the time, of course, we were nothing. Uh, we were insignificant, a uh, handful of people as a news uh, organization against truly gargantuan global organizations like Dow Jones going back to the 19th century, Reuters going back to the 19th century, Time, Inc. going back to the early 20th century, um, you know, one company after another. If you go back to 1990 and where we started, uh, which was as a handful of people with no pedigree or history, and you fast forward to today, we're the only news organization that's still the same. In other words, everybody else has been bought and sold at least once um, and changed, whereas we are still the same and we're just bigger. That's all. A couple of other milestones. If we get deeper, I mean, the, the market um, bottomed was March of 2009. And I remember it was uh, a month before that, February of 2009. News Corp reports a loss on the $8.4 billion write-down. A huge part of that was Dow Jones and company. They wrote off about $3 billion, if I, if I see correctly, of that $5 billion acquisition. So he paid quite a rich price. And um, many people looked back at that and said it wasn't the, the savior that they had imagined. I mean, the Wall Street Journal still managed to lose a lot of people to the New York Times, to Bloomberg, to other places. I mean, he's managed to hang on for 12 years, but he, he bought it maybe before another round of disruption could have marked the price far lower. Well, yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> there's, no, there's no question that um, I think Bloomberg had a lot to do with uh, – the difficulties that Dow Jones would later uh, encounter, particularly in the 90s and then in the new century. And that's because it didn't truly understand the power of electronic data. And what I mean by that is, you know, Dow Jones goes all the way back to the 1890s, mm. I think 1892, in fact. And it never occurred to Dow Jones to take any of the data that was in every edition of the Wall Street Journal and put it on a computer and organize it. Reuters didn't do that either, by the way, nor did Time, nor did McGraw-Hill, nor did any media company. The only company that did that was Bloomberg, which was founded by somebody who's not a newsman, an engineer by training, a physics major, went to Harvard Business School and traded equities at Solomon Brothers. He was the person who recognized that data, otherwise known as facts, 
is news. And if you can take as many of those facts going back in time to the present, you're going to create something very powerful to be used with words. And by combining that ability, which is what Bloomberg was about, um, Bloomberg essentially co-opted the traditional customers of Dow Jones, for sure, in the U.S. Mm. Uh, where they were captive once, they now could come to Bloomberg and get everything they needed. Um, and so that weakened what was essentially the hegemony that Dow Jones had across the U.S. And Dow Jones, if I recall, invested in Tellerate, threw quite a bit of money at it, which was supposed to be a, a killer app or a well, Bloomberg Well, here was the problem never... with Tellerate. Um, and I knew Tellerate very well because as a credit market reporter at the Wall Street Journal, that's what I used. The problem with Tellerate, which was the system of choice by anybody in the bond market in the 1980s, was that Tellerate was a, simply a stage in which the curtain went up every day and you got today's prices. They were live. They were the best prices because they were live. But then the curtain went down and you lost yesterday's prices. You didn't get them back. And so it was a very one-dimensional uh, system, uh, very um, undeveloped. It never did develop. And so it wound up becoming an albatross mm. for Dow Jones because Dow Jones bought it incrementally uh, all through the 80s. I mean, was sort of on a staircase buying it uh, or stairs, just bought more and more of the equity until the early 90s. It owned uh, almost two-thirds of Tellerate and it was at that point becoming um, a worthless asset. Uh, and I say worthless because it couldn't do what the Bloomberg did. It couldn't tell you anything about relative value. All it could show sure. you was today's prices and research from everywhere. You know, so it had today's prices and everybody's research. Well, that's you know not good enough. And the other thing is uh, what Bloomberg was from day one, and he anticipated, if you will, everything that we're doing today. Uh, you know, this is long before the Internet. Bloomberg was immediately in its infancy an aggregator. And it was an aggregator because Bloomberg said, I want to take everything I can possibly get that's useful to people and put it in front of them and make it accessible. And, you know, an example of that is, you know, if you go to a Bloomberg terminal today, you don't just get Bloomberg news. Real time. You could get flight schedules. You get you the Washington get... Post real time. Right. You get the New York Times real time. You get the Wall Street Journal real time. No extra charge. Who does that? So let me ask you, when the Wall Street Journal was formally in play and maybe they were looking for a white knight or a savior, some of the Bancrofts had kind of split off and said, we don't want it going to Rupert Murdoch. It would have been unthinkable for them. You know, the tabloid mogul and the New York Post and whatnot. Did I, And Mike Bloomberg, of course, was mayor at that point. Did you guys give it a look? Uh, not as far as I know. Um, he was mayor, um, but were you tempted to say this is ultimate vindication? I mean, I broke this not story. At, not at five billion dollars. Was that the number? That yeah, I guess that was the number that was being not bandied five, about. That was the price. It well, was five billion. I'll fast forward it to where it affected me. I, of course, was at Business Week, which is owned by McGraw Hill, that had the ratings companies. Uh, it had Standard and Poor's, which was its cash cow. And the unthinkable happened to us. Uh, 
in October of 2009, uh, the, the magazine that was almost like 80 years old then was put up for sale. Bloomberg buys Business Week from McGraw-Hill. How did that happen? Did you get so, the word from City Hall and from everybody else that this is in play and we're looking at it? So, so that's, a wonderful, that's a wonderful story. And you, as an uh, alum, would appreciate it. So as you, as you point out, um, the media business, particularly the magazine business, was um, going through turmoil, uh, especially with the onset of the financial crisis and then the worst recession since the Great Depression. And magazines really were um, in trouble, traditional magazines, even ones with a great uh, subscriber base like Business Week. And uh, we, and I'm sure others, but we especially were courted by McGraw-Hill um, because at that point it was very well known what our journalistic values are and so on. And initially with Mike Bloomberg and City Hall um, and uh, – a management team here, there was a reluctance uh, to get into a bidding contest or even spend a lot of money. Well, for time anything. out for a second. You already had Bloomberg Markets, which was your magazine. I remember it was, we neatly, created it. It was neatly bundled by the Bloomberg terminals Correct. when I worked at Goldman. And there were these questions out there that, if if anything, the, the rumor back in the day was if he wanted to buy one thing, the bauble that he was interested in was the New York Times, not that it was necessarily in play. So... Um, well, that may be so, but that didn't come up, mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't, you know, a discussion point. What was interesting about how this all transpired is that Bloomberg News actually was the first public, if you will, uh, report that Business Week was for sale, mm -hmm. and um, and I, um, being on the management committee of Bloomberg was not obviously able to share with anybody editorially that I knew that Business Week was for sale. It was just our reporters happened to do what they always do, which is do their jobs, and they reported that Business Week was for sale. It just so happened on the day that <laughs> we reported, it was in July, uh, that Business Week was for sale, June or July. And the reason why I know this is I was at a uh, tennis match of my daughter's, and it was very hot like today. And it was like around noon, and uh, my BlackBerry uh, is ringing, and of course, it's Mike Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg. And he says, I'm just reading on the Bloomberg that Business Week is for sale. And he says, what do you think? And I said, well, if you're asking me as a journalist, what do I think? I think it's an amazing magazine. I love it. Uh, it would be wonderful to have, um, but, you know, you should be aware that all the people who know far more than I do about this stuff, like magazine publishing, say it's just a loss leader. It's a terrible, you know, thing, and it'd be a big burden. And by the way, we just hired this guy who, who was, you know, very, very senior in publishing from time – Inc. and uh, to help us with our own magazine. And um, he's also named Michael. And, um, you know, you really should talk to him because mm -hmm. he knows far more about the economics of magazine publishing. So Mike said, well, set it up. I want to talk to this guy. I want to hear what he has to say. So, uh, so I set up this, you know, meeting. Uh, our, our Michael uh, in publishing goes visits the mayor and um, 
and gives him, you know, what he thinks is a very detailed course in magazine publishing and how perilous it is. And, and Mike Bloomberg says to him, do I look like I need another dollar? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, he took that back. And mm. once the management committee heard that Mike Bloomberg wasn't so afraid of, um, you know, making an investment, then everything changed. Uh, and, you know, the management team at Bloomberg then got together with uh, the folks at McGraw-Hill. And as you know, uh, you know, the end of 2000, I guess it was nine. 2009, yeah, yeah we're nearing the 10th anniversary of it. Um, the, deal, the deal was done. And, um, and it's, uh, it was, uh, you know, happily ever after as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. I have to ask you, this is, gets a little inside baseball, but we always thought that, you know, when Standard & Poor's was the cash cow at McGraw-Hill, that we were just much more asymmetrically valuable to Terry McGraw and those guys because we could be a, what, a, a First Amendment put option. Every time that that Congress drags the rating companies in front of it and say, oh, you messed up on Continental Illinois, you messed up on Orange County, you messed up on this, they could point to the magazine and say, we're just, we're, 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 we're journalists. I mean, that was our editorial opinion, which is constitutionally protected. And we had always thought internally, and it made for a complacent magazine, you know, towards the end, that that was ultimately the protection as an insurance policy. You're much more valuable to McGraw-Hill than you'd ever be to any suitor. So what's the question? Well, that didn't apply. I mean, the, the losses became so bad that, you know, it sold to, to Bloomberg News. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, once losses become so um, burdensome, um, truth, justice, and the American way even doesn't get to make the case. Mm. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Matt Winkler, co-founder and editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. Uh, Matt, take us into the things that you're covering right now. I saw some of your bylines. Uh, you gave up the uh, the, the editor-in-chief title. Uh, John Mikowith of The Economist came in, what was it, three years ago, four years 2015. ago? 2015. 2015. So you've been writing since. Have you been working with newsroom development? Tell me about this, this stage of your career. So, uh, yes, uh, when... When Michael Bloomberg announced that I was uh, becoming uh, editor-in-chief emeritus, he did, he did say I would be doing a few things. Uh, one of them is uh, convening um, what we would call newsmakers, could be uh, political leaders like presidents, prime ministers, central bank governors, finance ministers, and the like, wherever – there is a need at Bloomberg around the world, and I do that uh, often, and uh, I've been doing it almost five years now, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it takes me everywhere. Uh, so that's one thing that I do, and that was advertised almost—that was advertised before I even started doing it. The second thing that I do, which you referenced, is uh, literally as I was making the transition, uh, the— um, the person in charge, the head creator of uh, Bloomberg Opinion, David Shipley, said, would you do a column for us? And, uh, you know, and I said at the time I hadn't thought of that. Um, and he said, well, give it some thought. And I thought, well, what might make a lot of sense is to do a column that is very data-driven and that would focus on whatever prevailing assumptions there are and show that the data belies the assumptions. And that's essentially been the formula 
for the column that I do. And, it, you know, maybe uh, I do 20 to 25 a year um, of these columns. You know, they're about uh, 850 to 1,000 words a piece. And it's been a lot of fun because I get to focus on lots of things where people think it's one way. And when you look at the data, it's exactly the opposite. And two examples that I did, for example, in 2015, one was California. Mm. For years, um, you know, the assumption had been California with its high taxes and burdensome regulations, more regulations than anywhere else, higher taxes than anywhere else, must be bad for business. And in fact, lots of Texas governors have uh, succeeded by making that that pitch. And so in 50, and, and I looked at, you know, all the companies in California and the Russell 3000, big and small companies alike, publicly traded. And, uh, you know, every investment measure we have on the Bloomberg, which is a lot, you know, like a dozen or more, uh, showed that the companies domiciled in California over 10 years, five years, two years, one year, any time frame you want, outperform the companies domiciled in every other state, including Texas. So if California is bad for business, why do all the publicly traded companies in California outperform by miles uh, the companies everywhere else? Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And I've done that uh, in lots of ways because it's, it's a story that doesn't go away. It's still there. Uh, you know, 54% of all the technology sales in the United States come out of California. 91% of all the almonds consumed in the world come out of California. So California uh, is an economic juggernaut. You know, it's the fifth largest economy in the world, which we also reported exclusively on Bloomberg in our column. Um, so that's a lot of fun. The other story in 15 that was equally um, invigorating was uh, first six months of 2015, everybody uh, everywhere was saying Greece was going to default and leave the euro. Mm. Uh, and famously, George Soros said to Bloomberg News, it's going down the drain, Greece, that is. And um, Alan Greenspan, uh, within a month of what George Soros said, said it's only a matter of time before Greece leaves the euro and defaults. So I'm using my Bloomberg, and what do I see? That the yield on the benchmark 10-year Greek government bond in 2015, January, February, March, and so on all the way through – is trading at a yield that is well below its worst level of 2012. Mm. And so I say, well, you know, if it were to default, um, it wouldn't be trading where it is. And this is a real value. This is a, And it's a relative value, obviously. And it's showing that um, what everybody is saying just can't be true right now. So I then went back and looked very closely at all the polling in Greece. And it showed that not once ever... Have the Greek people ever expressed any preference for returning to drachmas? Uh, so if that's true, then the, and that was true, they they were committed to the euro. And so for all the political noise, of which there was a lot, um, the economic and financial noise was not the same. And um, in 2015, if you ask the question, what was the best performing asset in the world, and I mean art, real estate, everything else, it turned out to be Greek bonds, something mm -hmm. like 180% total return. So that's why this column is just a lot of fun. And I do that 
regularly. The thing that really has captivated my attention more than anything else now at Bloomberg is the one regret I had after 25 years of leading Bloomberg News was that while we had succeeded in narrowing the gender gap significantly to the point where most of the headcount at Bloomberg News reported to women um, in 15, uh, most of the journalists more or less looked and sounded like me. Mm-hmm. That is, there were no journalists of color covering the story of money. And that wasn't just the case at Bloomberg. It's true everywhere. And I really believe that um, it's all about asking questions. And if people asking questions look alike and sound alike, you're going to get the same answers and the same narrative again and again. And it was especially important to have much greater diversity in the newsroom. So I've been, for the past uh, three and a half years, uh, building this program with a lot of help from everybody inside Bloomberg called uh, the Business Journalism Diversity Program. And its purpose is in partnership with universities to create the aspiration, especially among journalists of color, to cover the story of money in all its forms. Um, So that's, you know, business, markets, technology, finance, and so on. And my reasoning is, our reasoning is, if you want to speak truth to power, you've got to follow the money. And uh, even if you want to cover sports or entertainment or any of these other wonderful beats, uh, you'll do them so much better if you understand money, because that's where the power is. So we have uh, created a a partnership with the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which has a very big and distinguished program in journalism. And we've done the same with the University of California at Berkeley. So there's two public institutions with very high standards and uh, great aspirations and great students, by the way. And uh, our program is open to students everywhere. So it's not just students coming from those two schools on both coasts. Uh, You know, we've had people from Appalachian State to Yale uh, in the Mm -hmm. program. Uh, The one thing that uh, they share in common is that they're mostly journalists of color. Right. And they're people who initially at least had zero interest in writing about money, finance, companies, and so on. And as a result of these programs, we now have several, more than several people who are making a living uh, doing what I do. And uh, here's hoping will replace me. So that's, mm-hmm. uh, for me, you know, the most important part of what I do now at Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. Matt, uh, in the seven minutes or so we have left, I have to ask you about China. Um, and this came up quite a bit in the uh, winter of 2013 and early 2014 when it was perceived that the, the government, you know, Beijing had kind of put its thumb on the fat pipes at Bloomberg when it uh, sensed that there was skeptical coverage of, of princelings or people with uh, ties to the government or relatives of the government. You you illustrated for us before that one of the turning points with you and Mike Bloomberg was that he said that he would never be stared down by a financial services firm. Like if Merrill – it was a skeptical piece written about Merrill and Merrill threatened to disconnect its thousands of terminals. Well, tough. You're, it's harder for you guys to live without us. Could you live without China, that being the impending – you know, the, the incipient biggest economy in the world in a couple of decades? The capital markets are enormous. Such a growth story. How do you deal with with nation-state actors who are threatening to disconnect you? So, you know, I've always gotten asked that question a lot. And I say, well, you think (laughs) – and I'm on the board of uh, Committee to Protect Journalists. And I say, you think China's the only problem? 
I said, have you heard of Turkey? I said, they're actually more journalists uh, in, in, incarcerated or worse in Turkey. Um, and, you know, that's just one of dozens of countries. Um, you know, we're very fortunate in the United States to have the history of the First Amendment um, and the tradition of a free press, uh, which is not something that uh, most countries have in their uh, experience, really. And so we can't ever take it for granted. We have to do the best we can. We have to do whatever we can to do the best journalism wherever we can. Um, and, you know, we're no different than than lots of great news organizations that come before us that have been in difficult situations and doubtless will have more difficult situations just because of what we have to do. Um, you know, that's how I looked at it at the time. You know, in our course of reporting, by the way, everywhere, China included, you know, the reporting that gets us into trouble and that in that case, uh, you're talking about 2012, um, it was all from public documents. I mean, none of it was this is understood or according to people familiar <laughs> with the situation or any of those anonymous attributions, uh, the, the reporting that you know, we have done that has been our best, has been data-driven and entirely public. We just put it all together. Um, and I dare say, you know, we'll do it again and again. And again, it will take us where it takes us. And thank goodness Mike Bloomberg is, um, you know, the owner because uh, he really does get it. And you know, but he, I was thinking about this on the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen, and I remember I was watching CNN and they yanked Bernard Shaw off and they cut off the cameras and everything. But what if what if the situation in Hong Kong had had uh, you know sprawled out into something worse? Like the uh, the, the government effectively uh, you know can threaten commercial retaliation against you. It's almost like sanctions, where that's not necessarily the case with uh, a New York Times. It's like so kicking a reporter. Let out me of the give country. you an example of much earlier uh, of all of that, um, which gives you some understanding of our perspective and why we're still here and, and why we live to do our jobs, not just in the next few hours, but tomorrow and many tomorrows to come. So I want to say it's uh, early in the new century. And we had um, somebody who was writing columns for us at the time who had been in Singapore and was now writing from the very comfortable perch of, I think, Litchfield, Connecticut. And uh, he wrote a column uh, which used uh, the N-word, which is a, a banned word in Singapore, nepotism. And, uh, and it immediately – I didn't see the column, unfortunately, because I would have said, you know, this is exactly what <laughs> – is going to get us sued uh, if you use that word. Um, and sure enough, uh, I had been on, uh, I was on vacation actually in the Outer Banks and they get a call at one o'clock in the morning from our uh, council and he says, you've just been served with papers by the Singapore government uh, for uh, libel, for slandering the Singapore government because this column had used the word nepotism in the context of one of the relations of uh, Lee Kuan Yew who was uh, the founder of Singapore as we know it today mm. and its uh, leader. So I said, settle right now as fast as you can. 
And, uh, and the reason why I said that is because I knew we couldn't possibly win. No one had, you know, had been in this situation before, had come close to getting out with any kind of uh, uh, decency. I mean, you know, you, you, you do what you have to do. In that case, uh, not settling would mean um, that more than 60 people who were native Singaporeans would be at risk. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, so we did. And um, we were immediately excoriated in an op-ed by uh, William Sapphire, of all people, in the New York Times, who called our decision to settle with, with Singapore craven. That was his word. He was, you know, somebody who's master of words. And, um, you know, he didn't bother to call me or, or have a conversation. I, I would have, had he asked, I would have said, said so, Mr. Sapphire, um, does the New York Times have a printing plant in Singapore? Does it have 60 <laughs> native citizens of Singapore uh, working for it? No. It has a correspondent or two or maybe more, uh, and that's it. And they get kicked out of the country. I said, we're in a completely different place. Um, you know, and by the way, um, everybody, including the New York Times, because it was a, at that time a 50% owner of the International Herald Tribune, the International Herald Tribune got into trouble with Singapore, as The Economist did, as The Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal did, as just about every news organization did. And in every single instance, they all settled. And I was all too familiar with the history of that. And so uh, my point in answer to your question is, look, you do the best you can, but you do it with an understanding that American law does not prevail um, outside of the borders of the United States. And much as you would like to do everything that you could possibly do inside the United States, everywhere else in the world, that's probably unrealistic, uh, but you do the best you can. Matt Winkler, co-founder and editor-in-chief emeritus at Bloomberg News. I can't thank you enough for this. And I do have a favor to ask of you. Go up to the the sky lobby over there, the hyphen, the, the sixth floor, and please send my regards to the peanut butter machine. It, it kept me company in my, my trying deadline hours when I was at Bloomberg. Happy trails. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to Charlie Volmer at Bloomberg Radio. This show airs on NPR member station 88.9 WCVE News on NPR.org and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. And don't forget about Not a Surf on Full Disclosure, featuring a full concert at Richmond's Historic National Theater Sunday, November 10th. Get ticks while you can. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>